You're listening to Comedy Central. February 27, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. tonight is the author of The Hate You Give, the best-selling novel that became a major movie. Now she's got a new book out. Angie Thomas is joining us, everybody. <laughs> also, also on tonight's show, President Trump is having the bestest sleepover. Michael Cohen says it takes a liar to catch a liar, and Louis Black has all the diseases. So let's catch up on today's headlines. <laughs> President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Their relationship is like that weird new Pokemon movie. It shouldn't work, but somehow it just does. So when they met for their second summit meeting today, everyone wanted to see how they would hit it off. The president kicking off his high-profile second summit with North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un. The two met just this morning for dinner, evening time there, and a one-on-one conversation. It's great to be with you. We had a very successful first summit. I felt it was very successful. And some people would like to see it go quicker. I'm satisfied, you're satisfied. We want to be happy with what we're doing. But I thought the first summit was a great success, and I think this one hopefully will be equal or greater than the first. (laughs) Yo, man, I never get tired, but every time Kim Jong-un meets Donald Trump, he has that look on his face. Like, he's like, is this really the president of America? (laughs) Like, you can see the whole time he's like, where's Ashton Kutcher? This is a scam, right? (laughs) Like, he looks the way we all felt for the first year after the 2016 election. Like, we're gonna wake up. This is not real, right? Also, this isn't uh, exactly biting political commentary, but I will say it is astounding how weird these two men look. (laughs) Just look at them. Like, they're so geometric, right? (laughs) It's like, it's like two video game characters. Kim looks like those Nintendo Miis. <laughs> and Trump is like Blanca from Street Fighter II. Like, <laughs> like, everything about them. They even move like characters in a video game. Look at this, what is this? <laughs> it's like, no, no, turn the other way. Turn the other, what are you doing? They're just weird, man, they're weird looking. Like, I bet if they posed for a caricature artist in the park, the guy would just be like, there's nowhere to go. There's a, <laughs> I'll just put them on a skateboard. God's already done the work. All right, let's move on to some more news taking place overseas. Because while these two were discussing what to do about nuclear weapons, India and Pakistan were also thinking about things to do with their nuclear weapons. Pakistan says its Air Force shot down two Indian warplanes after they crossed a boundary in the disputed territory of Kashmir. Earlier, Pakistani fighter jets executing a bombing run, making this the first time these two countries have both deployed warplanes against each other since their last war almost 50 years ago. But the big difference this time is that both countries now have nuclear weapons. Well, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) And if you're not familiar with the situation between India and Pakistan, Just think of it this way. Imagine Cardi B and Nicki Minaj. (laughs) Now, imagine they both have nuclear weapons. Yeah. This is slightly less dangerous than that. That's what I'm saying. And obviously, I I hope India and Pakistan don't go to war. But if they did go to war, it would probably be the most entertaining war of all time, yeah? 
because the Indian soldiers would run out on the battlefield and they'd be like, time for you to die! It would also be the longest war of all time. Another dance number? <laughs> and finally... <laughs> finally, sorry, I love Bollywood. I'm sorry, I do. Some news closer to home. I believe that children are the future. Teach them well and let them beat the crap out of each other. In Canada, when it comes to recess and playground time, some elementary schools are experimenting with the idea of letting their students play rough. These pilot projects will set up supervised rough play zones in the schoolyard. This is a space where students can shove, they can grab, they can wrestle, but they have to follow the rules. Participation has to be voluntary. There's no kicking, there's no hitting, biting, or throwing objects. The idea is to let some students who may be considered maybe a little more rambunctious to uh, get their energy out. That's right. Schools in Canada are setting aside a part of their playground for kids to basically beat each other up. <laughs> you see all the fun you can have when your country has free healthcare, huh? You see? <laughs> like, recess is so much better when you can sprain your ankle and your mom won't have to pawn her wedding ring. It's so much more fun. <laughs> and it's so funny how, as a society, we're getting so advanced, we're realizing some of the things we got rid of are actually good. Right, cause this is a new thing now, playing rough on the playground, whoa. <laughs> Other things, people are like, maybe we should let kids get germs, ooh. <laughs> Eating lead paint, we're bringing it back. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I think kids should get into fights in the schoolyard, right? I'm not saying they should fight, I'm just saying they should get into fights. Because can you imagine if you never get pushed as a kid, and then when you're like 35 years old, you get pushed for the first time, you wouldn't know what was happening. <laughs> just some guy would just be like, get out of the way, you'd be like, whoa! What is this? <laughs> All right, let's move on to today's top story. Now, on any other day, the biggest news would easily be the meeting between an autocratic madman and the world's most dangerous baby. You can decide who's who. <laughs> but even though President Trump is all the way in Vietnam, his domestic scandals are still dominating the news while he's away, which is really impressive. You know, it's like those people who have super farts that linger in the room long after they've left. <laughs> You know those people, yeah? And you're like, how can we still smell? He left an hour ago. <laughs> and it's almost like the thoughts in the corner, like, I'm sorry, guys, he told me I should wait here for him. <laughs> that's, that's what this is. And the big thought today was Michael Cohen, <laughs> Trump's former lawyer who's flipped and started cooperating with Robert Mueller. And today, he was on Capitol Hill to tell Congress everything that he knows about his old boss. The man who once said he would take a bullet for Donald Trump took aim at the president today. Sparks fly on Capitol Hill as Michael Cohen sits before the House Oversight Committee. He's making explosive allegations against the president. Mr. Trump is a racist. Mr. Trump is a con man. Mr. Trump is a cheat. He is capable of behaving kindly, but he is not kind. He is capable of committing acts of generosity, but he is not generous. He is capable of being loyal, but he is fundamentally disloyal. Damn, that was one hell of an opening statement. Especially the part where he started speaking like the Riddler. <laughs> Just like, who is kind, but not kind? <laughs> Bald, but also blonde. His hands are tiny, but he can grab an entire pussy. Who is he? <laughs> who is he? <laughs> so yes, Michael Cohen told Congress that President Trump is a racist, 
a conman and a cheat, which would have been big news if it wasn't also the slogan for Trump's 2020 campaign. <laughs> but it was interesting to hear Cohen give examples of Trump's racism in private settings. He once asked me if I could name a country run by a black person that wasn't a shithole. This was when Barack Obama was president of the United States. And while we were once driving through a struggling neighborhood in Chicago, he commented that only black people could live that way. And he told me that black people would never vote for him because they were too stupid. What? Black people wouldn't vote for you, Trump, because they're too stupid? No, Donald. Actually, the reason black people wouldn't vote for you is because of your trash-ass weave. <laughs> Look at that thing. What is that? Where did you get it from? It looks like you couldn't afford the good shit from India, so you just had to take it off the horses in Central Park. That's... <laughs> that's why black people didn't vote for you. Also, the 50 years of well-documented racism, but mostly the weave, my friend. Now, in response to Cohen's racism accusations, the Republicans on the committee put forward an airtight response to prove that Trump is the least racist person you will ever meet. Mark Meadows bringing in Lynn Patton, who works for the administration, as proof that Donald Trump is not a racist. I asked Lynn to come today in her personal capacity uh, to actually shed some light. It has to do with your claim of racism. She says that as a daughter of a man born in Birmingham, Alabama, that there is no way that she would work for, a, uh, for a, an individual who was racist. Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> they used the black friend defense. I cannot be racist because as you can see, I have a black friend. <laughs> there are so many things about this that I find funny. One, Whenever the Trumps are accused of racism, they always bring the same woman. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> like, if you can only bring one black person every time, something tells me you don't have black friends. <laughs> and also, I wonder how many times she has to show up to places because of something racist Trump has said. <laughs> like, it feels like she has to bail him out. At 3 a.m., she's probably getting texts from Trump like, quick, Lynn, I need you to come down to the golf club. I thought someone was Steve Harvey, but it was not Steve Harvey! <laughs> It's like sign like a, a bat signal for her. It's like a black signal. Just like, save me! <laughs> and now Cohen made it clear that he had no hard proof of Trump coordinating with Russia during the campaign, but he did share one memory that looking back on it says, you know, that it could be proof that Trump knew about the infamous Trump Tower meeting. Don Trump Jr. came into the room and walked behind his father's desk, which in and of itself was unusual. People didn't just walk behind Mr. Trump's desk to talk to him. And I recall Don Jr. Leave, leaning over to his father and speaking in a low voice, which I could clearly hear, and saying, the meeting is all set. And I remember Mr. Trump saying, okay, good, let me know. You know the best part of that little story? Isn't that Trump may have known about the Russia-Trump Tower meeting? It's that Don Jr. doesn't know how to whisper. And Cohen had plenty of other revelations today. You know, details on Trump potentially committing campaign finance crimes by paying off Stormy Daniels, uh, and how he fraudulently used his charity to pay for a portrait of himself, and how Trump influenced Cohen to lie about his business dealings with Russia. But Trump's supporters on the House committee, they kept coming back to the same points. Why should we believe Michael Cohen? I don't believe that Michael Cohen is capable of telling the truth. Michael Cohen, fraudster, a cheat, convicted felon and in two months a federal inmate. How on earth is this witness credible? 
He's a fake witness. And his presence here is a travesty. You're about to go to prison for lying. How can we believe anything you say? The answer is we can't. Look at the old adage that our moms taught us. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Mm. No one should ever listen to you and give you credibility. Uh, <laughs> whose mom taught them liar, liar, pants on fire? <laughs> I'm pretty certain that was a kids to kids thing. That wasn't the mom thing. As my wise mother always said to me, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> That's what my mom said all the time. And look, these Republicans do have a point, right? As Cohen himself has admitted, he lied to America on behalf of Donald Trump for 10 years. In fact, he's soon going to prison, partly because he already lied to Congress. So why take his word on any of this stuff? Well, we may not have to take his word because Cohen also brought the receipts. I am giving to the committee today three years of Mr. Trump's personal financial statements. I am providing a copy of a $35,000 check that President Trump personally signed from his personal bank account on August 1st of 2017. When he was president of the United States, a copy of the $130,000 wire transfer. I'm giving the committee today copies of a letter I sent at Mr. Trump's direction threatening these schools with civil and criminal actions. Mr. Trump directed me to threaten his high school, his colleges, and the college board to never release his grades or SAT scores. <laughs> okay, that, that part is just hilarious. <laughs> How bad were Trump's grades <laughs> that he threatened to sue his school <laughs> if they released them? Like, I swear to God, if you tell anyone I got a G minus in math, <laughs> I will destroy you. Oh, maybe we assume that, maybe it's something else. Maybe Trump doesn't want anyone finding out he got an A in Spanish. <laughs> He's just like, if this gets out, my supporters are gonna be so mad, entonces solamente no bien días. <laughs> I mean, bad hombres, build the wall. <laughs> and look, you almost can't blame Republicans for caring more about protecting their presidents than getting to the truth, all right? That's just how politics works these days. But Michael Cohen did have a warning for them. I did the same thing that you're doing now for 10 years. I protected Mr. Trump for 10 years. And I can only warn people, the more people that follow Mr. Trump, as I did blindly, are going to suffer the same consequences that I'm suffering. Wow. That is a powerful, powerful statement. And in response, the Republican congressman replied, I'm rubber, you're glue. <laughs> I yield the remainder of my time. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. When a news story falls through the cracks, Lewis Black catches it for a segment we call Back in Black. You know, America has been blessed with some top-notch diseases. Swine flu, bird flu, and of course, pizza rat chlamydia. <laughs> I've had them all. Well, good news, now we're even more blessed because one of America's classic diseases is making a comeback. 
Right now, the U.S. is experiencing its worst measles outbreak since 2014, with 349 cases in 26 states in the past year. Measles is no laughing matter. Measles can kill and... It is exquisitely contagious. So uh, you can be in a room uh, where somebody with measles had left two hours earlier and still get the disease. <laughs> measles can survive in a room for two hours? There's not enough hand sanitizer in the world. You can never be too careful. That was vodka, by the way. A heightened Purell bottle so I could drink it in public. <laughs> but yes, the measles are back like a new Kids on the Block reunion tour. No one asked for it, and no one's happy to see it. I thought measles were Dark Ages crap we successfully eliminated from the planet like the dodo. If you say you're a bird, but you can't fly, you're a liar! How did this happen? Modern medicine had pretty much eradicated measles, but it turns out science is no match for its greatest foe, idiots. This month, the World Health Organization called the anti-vaccine movement a major threat to public health. Hundreds rallied to preserve their right not to vaccinate their children. It is highly contagious. Yes, it Perhaps is. Perhaps one of the most contagious diseases out there. Yes, it is. Are you afraid you're putting your child at risk? No, I don't feel like I'm putting my child at risk. There's nothing that's going to change my mind on this, on that specific vaccination. If you read the fine print, it, I'm sure somewhere it says, you know, there is a possible fatal outcome there, <laughs> some possible <laughs> fatal consequences, and that, that gets you a little worried. <laughs> I love morons. If you read the fine print, well, actually, I've read the fine print of measles, and you know what the side effects include? Dying of measles! <laughs> so where do these dummies get these dumb ideas? The same place that wants you to believe your miserable aunt and closeted uncle are actually happy the internet, but social media are finally starting to get their act together. Facebook said, quote, we've taken steps to reduce the distribution of health-related misinformation on Facebook, but we know we have more to do. Pinterest is blocking searches related to vaccinations. The social media company says it wants to curb the spread of misinformation. Most shared images on Pinterest relating to vaccinations advise against them. Who the f is getting their health information on Pinterest. <laughs> That's where you're supposed to plan weddings and find tacky home decor. <laughs> then again, on Pinterest, you can find tips on how not to vaccinate your kid and then find the perfect headstone for your unvaccinated kid. <laughs> oh, shut up! <laughs> I'm up to date on my shots. I don't hear your ooze. <laughs> Look, this isn't a debate. Vaccines are safe and anti-vaxxers put the rest of us at risk. So get your shots and find a new conspiracy theory that won't hurt anyone. We don't even care how crazy it is. You can think the Earth is flat and that Tupac is still alive and lives underneath the flat Earth like a 90s hip-hop troll. Just leave us out of it. And if that doesn't work, we'll have to fall back on the same plan B we use for everything these days. Get the kids to save us. High school senior Ethan Lindenberger says his parents' misguided beliefs about his health and the health of his younger siblings put them at risk. 
He recently defied his mother and got vaccinated. Lindenberger thought it was normal for most kids not to get immunized. But about two years ago, he began to see how the posts about vaccines his own mother was sharing on social media were dangerous. In November, Lindenberger asked strangers on Reddit where he could go to get up to date with his shots. My parents are kind of stupid, he wrote. God knows how I'm still alive. He had to vaccinate himself? Imagine you're in a bedroom with a syringe. Then your mom walks in and screams, is that a vaccine? <laughs> no, mom, it's heroin, I swear. <laughs> Look, vaccines are a public good, and I'm willing to do my part to end this epidemic of stupid. So for any kids or teens out there whose parents won't let them get their shots, here's my offer. I will adopt you. <laughs> will I be a good father? No! I'll gamble your college fund, I'll hit on all your girlfriends and boyfriends. And did I mention, I drink vodka from a Purell bottle. <laughs> but I'd still be better than anti-vaxxer parents. My adopted kids would need therapy, but at least they'd be alive. <laughs> Trevor? Louis Black, everyone! We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is a critically acclaimed young adult author whose first book, The Hate You Give, has been dominating the New York Times bestseller list for two years and counting. Her new book is called On the Come Up. Please welcome Angie Thomas. problem with short people in chairs. Oh, jumping into the chair? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a short people problem. It really is. <laughs> Kevin Hart always complains about that. Just, yeah, he always says he's got to hop into the chair. It's like his little thing. Uh, I didn't do that to sabotage you. Welcome to the show. No problem. I'm a big fan of yours. Congratulations, first and foremost. Uh, two years ago today, your book, The Hate You Give, was number one on the New York Times bestsellers list, and it is still bouncing between number one and number two. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, um... I'm intrigued. There's a question an audience member asked me just before you came out about adversity in life. Mm -hmm. You were an author, an author that nobody would take seriously, an author that nobody wanted you... No one wanted your work. No one was gonna publish you. Mm -hmm. And you carried on writing, you continued persevering, and you believed in yourself. How did you work through all of that adversity? How did you say to yourself, no, I, I do have something worth reading? You know, if for me, it was about keeping my vision, you know, um, and making sure that I always kept my dreams and focused on them, because it's easy to look at everything else. You know, and then having a black mama who will not let you give up. Right. Black moms have this talent. Like, I, you know, <laughs> dang oh well, you are not considering giving up. No, right. you gotta keep going. So that really helped me a lot. It was just, sometimes when you're going through so much stuff, you hope for better, and you can't help but keep going to try to get better. So I had to do that. You, you, you definitely did it, though, because you, you, you have an interesting niche that you've now carved out for yourself. You know, you, you had this book that was a story really in and around Black Lives Matter. And it was talking about a young child's experience as a black person. And many people were saying to you, oh, who would buy this? This is not what we're looking for. We want vampires. This is not what we're looking for. <laughs> and I mean, the story was crazy. You, you got your first break from a tweet. Yeah, Twitter's good for something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a literary agency held a question and answer session on Twitter, and I was considering 
sending the book out, but I was afraid. And right. once again, I was working at a church at the time. I wrote all of those curse words while working in a church. <laughs> um, God forgives me. Anyway, um, I, I was working in a church and I was at my desk and I saw that they had that question and answer session. Right. And I called my mom, once again, black mom's like, you better ask the question if you wanna know. So I asked if it was an appropriate topic for a young adult novel. Um, an agent, he responded and he was like, yeah, I'd love to read that actually. And I sent it to him, he signed me. That is that's such a <laughs> phenomenal story. You just, like, you just did it. Yeah. You, you, bring up, you bring up the curse words, and what I, what I really found interesting about your books is that they are written in such an authentic, fast-paced manner. It's, it's, it's about young adults. It's about, it's about kids who are growing into, into, into adults. It's about life. And there are some schools that didn't want to take your book, even though kids loved it, because they were like, this profanity that, that the kids are using in the book, this, we don't want our children reading this. How, how did you respond to that? Well, my first thought was, you must not be listening to those kids in the hallways. <laughs> um, but at first I was angry. I can't lie, I was so angry because I knew that was a cop-out. Right. Like, you can say that. And I will tell you this, there are exactly 89 instances of the F word and the hate you give. I counted on my Kindle. But last year alone, over 800 people lost their lives at the hands of police brutality. That number is far scarier. So when you're telling me it's the language, no, that's not what it is. You right. don't want to talk about the topic. And then when you're saying that, what you're telling these kids is that your stories don't matter. We don't want to hear your stories because they make us uncomfortable. Right. And my job as a writer is to write the stories that make adults uncomfortable because that's what the kids need. <laughs> the Hate You Give was turned into a really successful film. Um, I think it's boosted the popularity of the book and vice versa. And now you've come out with On the Come Up. What I really love about the story is it's the story of another young woman who is... Her dream is to become a rapper. Mm -hmm. She grows up in basically the same neighborhood as the character from The Hate You Give, but they live very different lives, very different stories. Did you do that on purpose, to put them in the same world, but have them be completely different? Yeah, absolutely. They don't even know each other because not all black people know each other. Whoa! I know, right? <laughs> Shocking. Um, no, they don't know each other. Their lives are different. Their personalities are different because right. I don't even want people to think that two girls from the same neighborhood will act alike, will behave the same way. So it was really important for me to do that. I, I thought it was really beautiful because it, it, it spoke to the idea that, you know, black is homogenous. People go, oh, it's black people. It's like, no, but there's no just black people as a whole. Right. All of these people are black, but they're experiencing life differently. She's living in a world where her aunt has a drug problem, her dad has been shot, and she's living in a very different world mm -hmm. uh, to the other character that we came across. Why was hip-hop such a big part of this book? Why, why do you think that's one of the driving forces that moves the book and your writing? You know, hip-hop spoke for me when books didn't. I loved reading as a kid, but as a teenager, I hated it. You know, you kind of alluded to vampires. You know, when I was a teen, Twilight was the big book. Right. And I have nothing against Twilight at all, but my mom wouldn't have let me date a 300-year-old vampire, so... <laughs> I couldn't connect, you know, in the Hunger Games, she would have been like, I volunteer as tribute, and they would have been called Mama Won't Let You Go Hungry Games. That's a whole different book. So hip-hop spoke for me when books didn't. I saw myself in rapper songs, you know. Um, when Tupac was saying, keep your head up, he was talking to me. You know, when Nas said, the world is mine, he was talking to me. Right. You know, um, and, and when TLC did what they did, they were speaking to me. So I wanted to pay homage to that because for so many young people, that's where they get their voice from. That's where they see themselves. Right. And it's a mirror for so many of them. So why not pay homage to that? It's one of the reasons that you've been so successful. Um, your book, The Hate You Give, 
was number one on the New York Times bestsellers list. Unfortunately, it's been knocked off the number one spot by your second book <laughs> on the come up. Do you have a little beef with yourself sometimes? You like know, a well, I did earlier today because The Hate You Give took the number one spot back. Right. And I'm like, Star, please let your little sister shine. <laughs> I feel like she's like the overachieving older child. Right, and she's right, like, right. nope, I got this. Let me get my spot back. But it's it's fun. It's interesting to know that I'm my biggest hurdle at times. Yes. You know, I don't mean to sound cocky by saying that, but I just got to try to beat myself at this point. That's, that's an amazing thing to, to work towards. It genuinely is. <laughs> Your books are amazing. There's a reason you've sold millions of copies. And, uh... I'm excited to see what film this one turns into. Thank you so much for being Thank on the show. You. Wonderful reading your work. On the Come Up is available now. Trust me, you want to read it. You want to get your kids reading it as well. Angie Thomas, everyone. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.